Hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is David Naff. I'm the Associate Director of Merck and the host of this podcast. Today, I'm joined by members of the Merck Supporting Mental Health in School study team to discuss why research suggests that it is important to support mental health in schools. We will also discuss our definition of mental health, what we believe the current needs are in our schools, and how we plan to explore this topic with our Merck study. Uh, This study was commissioned by the Merck Policy and Planning Council in the spring of 2020, recognizing how rising mental health needs in schools have been amplified by the COVID-19 pandemic. Let me introduce this group of committed people who are working on this project now. Uh, Patrice Beard is the mental health liaison for the Center for Family Involvement at Virginia Commonwealth University's Partnership for People with Disabilities, where she has worked for the past eight years. Patrice is certified to teach and present on the following National Alliance on Mental Health topics, basics, family to family, children's challenging behaviors, ending the silence, and parents and teachers as allies. Patrice holds certifications for the National Council for Behavioral Health, Youth, and Adult Mental Health First Aid USA, and Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training or ASSIST. She is also chair for the Virginia Behavioral Health Advisory Council. Her goal is to raise mental health awareness to as many people as possible. Patrice, so glad to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, David. Laura Early is currently the coordinator of psychological and diagnostic services in Chesterfield County Public Schools. She joined Team Chesterfield in 2018 after serving 21 years as a school psychologist in Buckingham County. Housed under the Department of Equity and Student Support Services, Laura supervises 34 school psychologists, nine elementary educational diagnosticians, and three school psychology interns. She is exceptionally proud of her team and describes them as, quote, a phenomenal group of dedicated, knowledgeable professionals who go above and beyond on a daily basis to serve our students and their families. Laura also serves as a co-chair of the Virginia Academy of School Psychologists, or VASP's Social Justice Committee, and was VASP's 2020-2021 School Psychologist of the Year. So Laura, award-winning school psychologist, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be part of the discussion today. Amy Johnson is a National Board Certified Counselor, Licensed Professional Counselor, Licensed School Counselor, and Registered Play Therapist serving in the capacity of Student Support and Wellness Specialist with Henrico County Public Schools. Amy has devoted her career to supporting children, adolescents, young adults, and parents overcome barriers that may be inhibiting them from reaching their true potential. She earned a bachelor's degree in interdisciplinary studies from the University of Richmond, her master's degree in counselor education from Virginia Commonwealth University, and a post-master's certificate in professional counseling from Virginia Commonwealth University. Amy's counseling experience began long before her formal training As a person with lived experiences of trauma and adversity, she was drawn to empowering others to find their path of healing, recovery, resilience, and growth. These lived experiences are what continue to fuel her passion to serve and elevate others. Amy, so glad to have you here. Thanks. Excited to be part of the conversation. Thanks for having me. Uh, Matt Schenker is a mindfulness-based counselor and philosopher. Matt is the head of experience for Pathly Incorporated, a digital health company that is reimagining and revolutionizing the business of well-being support. Matt spends much of his time consulting with schools and businesses to reshape their cultures, to be needs-based and trust-driven while exploring concepts such as mindfulness, burnout prevention, neurobiology-based behavior management, values-driven leadership, and empowered well-being. His life's work is to help build systems and empower people to live their fullest lives. Pathly is super cool. Matt got to, he showed me a little bit of a preview of this before. So Matt, really glad to, to have you with us. 
Thanks, David. As always, uh, happy to be with you and excited for this conversation. Erica Daniels is a school counselor at Vernon Johns Middle School in Petersburg City Public Schools. She has 15 years of experience as a school counselor in both the middle and high school setting. She's the president-elect of the Richmond Area Counselors Association and member of several other counseling associations. She is a doctoral candidate at Regent University in counselor education and supervision, as well as an adjunct professor for Regent University. As a leader in her school community, she is a member of the social-emotional support team in Petersburg City Schools and is passionate about the social-emotional well-being and mental health of students. So doctoral candidate means you're working on dissertation. You're also a veteran of this podcast. This is the second time you've been here. So Erica, welcome back to the show. Yes, David. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm really looking forward to our time today. Yeah, thank you for taking a break during your dissertation to talk to us. You're very welcome. <laughs> and then Felicia Friend-Harris has been speaking life and healing into her students, families, and colleagues of Richmond Public Schools for 18 years as a school psychologist and lead educational diagnostician. In her professional capacity, she daily engages individuals who are struggling with the impact of trauma on their lives. She speaks life into their darkness and equips them with the skills necessary to cope and promote a life of mental and physical health. Committed to individuals thriving, Dr. Friend-Harris passionately seeks to improve social emotional skills, mental health, and promote social justice. An educator at heart, she is an adjunct psychology professor at Virginia Union University. Dr. Friend Harris, so glad to have you here. Thank you, David. It's wonderful to be with you today. I'm, I'm really blown away by this group of people that we have here for this conversation today. I'm, I'm, I'm energized to start talking about mental health. And I should mention that in my former career, I was a high school counselor. It's still my favorite job that I've ever had. Also the hardest job that I've ever had. And I'm sure a lot of people on this call could really resonate with that. Um, and just to sort of level set, to, to set the stage, I've got a question for everybody, which is really the crux of what we're talking about today. Why is it important to support mental health in schools? Um, David, I can jump in um, and start our conversation today. Um, for, for me as a school counselor and having been in this profession for um, over 15 years, um, I have seen the changes in the students that I've worked with. Um, and so it's really important for me as a school counselor who is um, passionate about supporting students academically in their social emotional development and also with career development to um, spend time understanding where they are, where they come from, their history, their background, and supporting their mental health and well-being. Um, I believe that when we think about where we are today um, with the global pandemic and the impact that it's had on our communities, yet alone our schools, we are definitely seeing an increase um, in mental health needs that um, our students are exhibiting. Um, you know, and, and not just our students, but our teachers and our staff as well. Um, but in order to get to um, providing that that academic support and the development of our students, we have to address the mental health needs that they bring into the school building, into the classrooms, on the school buses, in the cafeteria. Like we have to understand that and provide opportunities for them to grow and develop socially and emotionally uh, before they can receive anything that they are, are to get in the classroom from their teachers. I agree with you wholeheartedly, Erica. And I would just add that School is the one consistent location where students are coming into contact with staff who are trained to recognize signs of mental health concerns. And so they know those signs, they can compare that particular student and whatever they're struggling with to their same age peers, and then make the necessary recommendations and referrals or provide the necessary counseling for that student to support them with their mental health needs. And research definitely has shown that this 
support of mental health for students in schools improves their academic performance. It helps to promote their social skills development. It helps to cultivate leadership skills in our students, and it really makes them self-aware of their emotional being and how to self-regulate their emotions. Wow. You know, Alicia and Erica, powerful points from both of y'all um, around the consistently climbing rates of mental health challenges that our students and adults are facing and what the research shows and the academic impact of really making sure that we're taking those needs into consideration. And over the past year and a half, I've worked with nearly 100 schools. And a few things that we really need to acknowledge is that it's an incredibly difficult time right now. We are in the midst of multiple crises. And so the, the number one concern or criticism or complaint that I hear from educators when uh, I'm holding an event of some sort or when, when I come in and I'm, and I'm working with a school for the first time is something along the lines of, you know, we really shouldn't be having conversations around children's psychological safety, emotional needs, or how teachers could serve those needs better because educators are already so tired and they shouldn't be expected to do any more. And so I think when we're talking about the why behind why we talk about mental health needs, it's important for us to look at this criticism and this frustration. And I tend to, I tend to have three, three responses to it. The first response is compassion. You know, in Gallup surveys done evaluating self-reported levels of stress across occupation groups before the pandemic, K-12 educators were right there at number two, right below nurses. And now it's only become more stressful. So the job of educators today is hard, and there is immense space for improvement in how we support and empower educators. So one, can we acknowledge that? Two, talking about children's neurobiological, psychological needs does not waste time. Those conversations empower educators with the ability to more effectively attend to psychological safety, fears, and feelings on the front end, making the learning experience more effective so we spend less time on academic, behavioral, and psychological intervention in the back end. If we build systems that are rooted in understanding how people are wired, then teachers would have more time and be less tired. We need more of these conversations, not less. And finally, we don't get to opt out of conversations about best practice if we're an aerospace engineer, a brain surgeon, or an explosive disposal specialist? Why should we get to if we're an educator charged with taking care of and developing the hearts and minds of our youngest human beings? Matt, that's so well said. I, I completely agree with um, so much that has been said thus far. Um, even though we're primarily educational entities, we do have a responsibility. And we know the research shows us that mental health issues do interfere with learning and providing um, comprehensive mental health services really make sense in our schools. I also think about our schools has small communities. And within those communities, we already have really critical and valuable relationships. And I think about those natural opportunities that come up to practice skills that we might be using. Um, for example, with anxiety, a student is naturally going to have opportunities to speak in front of the class, to make a new friend. Um, and our social workers, our school psychologists, our school counselors are already there and in those um, settings with them and have the skill sets. I also think about equity. 
it's school is a place where our students are. And so they bring not only their backpacks and their books and their physical selves, but they also bring any past traumas or mental health issues. And as you so eloquently put, we need to address those in order to get to the learning piece. But in some of our rural areas, we don't even have the infrastructure to be able to provide access to community providers and or to have um, reliable internet access for even some of the virtual support. So I just think it's an opportune place to support students. Kind of piggybacking on exactly what you shared, Laura, is that accessibility piece. So many times when we hear why aren't our students accessing mental health supports, it's time constraints, it's transportation issues, maybe there's financial constraints, or there's not access to providers, but the school provides that. So we house all of these things within our schools. And so being able to provide that and take that holistic pro approach on really, truly growing and supporting our, our young people. Yeah. Listening, you all are making really good points. I know when we talk about mental health, early intervention is key for everything. And that has been proved over and over and over again. But we seem to keep falling into being into the reaction mode of mental health. Because like you said, we know that um, children who have poor mental health have a higher rate of dropping out of school, have a higher rate of suicide have a higher rate of poor, lower grades, low scores. And for some, some of our children, like you said, with the, the overall wellness of children in schools and how schools play that role of whether that's feeding them breakfast, feeding them lunch, making sure those things for our rural communities and, and people below a certain income, that same thing is for mental health. Not everybody's home is their safe place, Right. There could be a lot of stuff going on at home, and it's a great opportunity for teachers and school administration to catch something if they're if they're if they know the warning signs and they're taught the warning signs and they can catch something that can really make a, a huge difference. So I think it's really important. Right, that's that's an important point, Patrice, and I I can't imagine a setting where you have a better opportunity to to engage in early intervention than the school. Like, at what place would somebody who's that age be? that proximal to caring adults, right? Where they're actually able to intervene on their behalf. And some of the research that we've accessed and read related to this show estimates as high as um, uh, K-12 age students are 21 times more likely to get the mental health support that they need in schools than outside of schools. So it just really speaks to how important it is for us to actually specifically focus on this in schools. Um, and Matt, you've been a big advocate during our, our uh, work on this study design for us to have a common definition of mental health to really clarify what we mean when we're talking about mental health. And so let's talk about that right at the onset here. What is our definition of mental health that we're using for this study? And then what sources did we use and how did we ultimately end up arriving at this definition? Yeah. So as a study team, we've been having a lot of conversations around what is most needed right now? What kind of information do, do we need so that we can improve our systems to more fully meet uh, the needs of everybody within our educational systems? And a huge pressing need that we've continued to return back to and that Merck has been talking about for a long time is the mental health of students. And we know that the data is showing that mental health disorder is continuing to climb. Rates of depression and anxiety are continuing to climb. Uh, depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Uh, loneliness rates have skyrocketed. And so we were having conversations around the importance of evaluating 
schools systems in relation to student mental health and taking a look at different programs and uh, things that we could measure, take a look at their impact. Yet we kept returning back to this question, which is when we're talking about mental health, what are we really talking about? Which is kind of a funny thing to me that we, something as, as foundational as health and mental health really has had an evolving definition throughout the research in the last century, even in the last half century. And so that's the space where we first really wanted to align. When we're talking about mental health and we're evaluating mental health, what are we talking about? And as we started having a conversation as a team about what that definition would look like, there were a few priorities that we had. One, we wanted to make sure that it included not just the absence of illness, that mental health was more than just the absence of illness, that when we're talking about health, that health comes from the uh, old English and I think proto-Germanic root word for wholeness. So when we're talking about health, wholeness, it's not just about the absence of illness, it's also about the presence of fullness or wellness. So that was that was a big piece. Uh, we also wanted to make sure that it was representative that mental health is an integral part of health. Indeed, there is no health without mental health and that the health of the mind cannot be evaluated in separation from the body. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that we made clear that mental health is determined by a range of socioeconomic, biological, and environmental factors, that mental health is more than simply a hedonic or eudaimonic construct. It's not simply about positive emotional states. It's about the ability to navigate and construct a fulfilling life. And we wanted to integrate everything that we've learned in the science in the last century, half century around neurobiology, neuroscience, psychology. So this actually was a big undertaking uh, that we were looking at as we dug into definitions, because there are a lot of definitions out there that talk about what some outcomes are of mental health, but don't actually talk about what it is. Uh, and finally, we wanted to make sure that we made clear that health is not a state that is achieved like the top of a pyramid and then statically stand strong. We wanted to incorporate you know, the, the work of folks like Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett and allostasis and everything we've learned about trauma in the last half century, that health is a dynamic process. So that was a big lead up to then what is our definition? Well, our, we've defined mental health as a dynamic state of internal balance which enables individuals to use their abilities to connect and contribute within society. It includes one's abilities to regulate emotional experiences, flexibly adapt to stress, orient to the present moment, create a sense of coherence, access empathic connection with others, cultivate a harmonious relationship between their body and mind and take values driven actions. Mental health can be evaluated and described by psychological challenges, as well as by the presence of positive processes like resilience, coping, and thriving. Mental health is an important aspect within every developmental stage from childhood to adolescence to adulthood. You know, that when you were talking about the pyramid, it's funny because in my head, I was thinking when I was in school, part of the curriculum was talking about your physical health and what you put in your body. Right. And we had the pyramid of all the groups you're supposed to have. And I thought, wouldn't that have been incredible? Along with that, they taught that mental health piece and strategies and things on that pyramid that we can do, like meditation and mindfulness and things like that. Something that simple that early on where it's just embedded. Yeah. And Patrice, I, I you know, in, in the conversations we've been having on the study team, uh, 
a big piece around why we wanted to define mental health was because we kept seeing research that was showing how stressful it can be for educators, that they are aware that there are increases in student mental health needs, but there is actually greater ambiguity about what those needs are and how they can meet them. And so really empowering educators with a definition of mental health so that they can have more of those exact conversations. And I think some of that research that we accessed, Matt, was kind of a wake-up call, too, because it would show things that it seemed to be that um, some of the educators who were surveyed, for example, might say that they didn't feel like it was part of their job necessarily to meet the mental health needs of their students, maybe because they were working from a definition of like clinical stress, depression, anxiety. But our mental health definition in response to that is that it's this more holistic, there's positive aspects of it, there's thriving and wellness aspects of it too. It's developmental. It's not this sort of discrete state that can be sort of an inherently negative thing. Everybody has mental health needs. That's kind of what our philosophy is with this study. And Amy, I'm curious in your role in Henrico, how does this definition that we've come up with resonate with your work in supporting students in your division? You know, I think Matt did a great job summing it up perfectly when he stated mental health in general is wellness. It's really about a wholeness or fullness that is integral and explicitly linked to overall health. So thinking about this from a division-wide perspective, Henrico worked to develop a strategic plan that really guides the work that all of us do within the district. I personally appreciate that there is a direct focus on creating safe and supportive, a safe and supportive climate for all individuals within Henrico. And more specifically, we have an, an objective within our strategic plan that focuses on ensuring that students will have their social and emotional needs met. So thinking about the question of how does this resonate with the work we do to support students, it really begins with ensuring that we're considering our staff's overall wellness. If our adults are not well, then we cannot expect them to lead this really important but difficult work. And in fact, adult wellness was a component of our 21-22 leadership roadmap. And this is something that is constantly being evaluated by our division leaders. We want to know how we can best support our teachers and staff, because when they experience mental health and wellness, naturally this is going to translate over to our students and our classrooms. And then from there, it's then thinking about how is it that we can best support our students' social-emotional needs. And of course, depending on the student's age, developmental stage, and overall needs, this may look a little bit different, but it's really the mindset that supporting our students' social-emotional health and wellness is the work that all of us do collectively. It doesn't matter what role you hold within the district, we all have an integral piece in working to support successful outcomes for all of our students. Absolutely. And Henrico is a, a, such a large school division. I know that's a lot to oversee the mental health needs of our of, um, of all of the students and faculty that are in that division. And a lot of this really happens at the school level. And Erica, I'm curious from your perspective in Petersburg. So considering our definition, what role do school counselors play in supporting student mental health? And how has your role changed since the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, this is a, a really good and interesting question, because when I think about, you know, the role of the school counselor, um, oftentimes there's, you know, a bit of ambiguity in our role as the school counselor as well. Do we operate in the role of an educator or do we operate in the role of a mental health professional? And my response is both and, right? We are tasked to provide supports to every single student. And in doing so, we part of our um 
um, expectations via the American School Counselor Association um, is developing a comprehensive program that addresses all of the needs of all students from the academic to the social emotional to the career development that we talked about earlier. And um, when we think about supporting student mental health, um, we are, um, you know, tasked with um, through individual counseling, through or individual advisement, through small group counseling supports, through um, going into the classroom and providing classroom lessons to address these uh, mental health needs from that proactive standpoint, right? And not necessarily being so reactive as we develop our comprehensive programs. So while we are um, still responding to mental health needs and reacting, we also have to choose and figure out pathways to be proactive so that we can address um, even the student who is not yet displaying, you know, situations where they are having a mental health crisis or things like that, but providing all of our students with the skill set, with the strategies, with the interventions so that they can use them um, when the time or if the time becomes necessary, they might be in a crisis. So part of our role and responsibility is to be proactive in the supports and interventions that we provide to our students. The other piece to that in Petersburg, even before the pandemic, we noticed that our students needed more and we were really focused on um, social emotional learning and we really we're pushing to invest in a curriculum to help us to teach our teachers and our students skills to address those um, learning competencies through CASEL related to social emotional learning. So we were invested in that process before the pandemic. So when the pandemic you know, hit, we were in a really good position to roll this program out so that we could get as in front of as much as possible the impact of COVID-19. Um, and what we found was that our students needed a lot of support and our teachers needed a lot of support. So it kind of... Um, it didn't really change how we do our job as school counselors, um, but it really helped us to hone in on what those things are that were most important at that time. And that was providing social emotional support and mental health support to our students. And we had to work creatively and collaboratively to do that. So it wasn't just the school counselor's job. It was the school counselor, the behavior specialist, the social worker, the school psychologist. And so we worked together with that social emotional support team to provide opportunities for our staff and provide opportunities for our students to learn those skills and to monitor the usage of our social emotional learning platform. So everyone in our district is receiving the same thing in the same way to be proactive in providing supports um, to our students that address that mental well-being that we were talking about earlier. Right. That all hands on deck approach is really our best chance at actually taking a proactive stance in supporting student mental health. And, and Laura, I'm curious, how does this resonate with the work that you do with school uh, counselors in Chesterfield? Yes, I'm just sitting here nodding my head, listening to Erica talk. Um, I absolutely think that the comments that she made, even though our districts are different, they definitely resonate with what I hear from our school counselors. And we're so fortunate um, here in Chesterfield and really throughout the Commonwealth to have amazing school counselors. And in Chesterfield, we also have a diversified team. We have the PBIS team and um, restorative practice specialists and a trauma-informed care specialist. And we also have three division level mental health support specialists. And we've, we've all been working together to um, address 
the conundrum that we find ourselves in, in the sense that we want to be more proactive, but largely due to some of the the capacity with um, the pandemic, we certainly have had to be a little more responsive in our approach. Um, But we continue to work upstream. And I agree with Erica. I'm amazed at just the creativity. And what I see in the schools is that we often are using lunch times to do lunch groups. Um, I see us doing things before and after school. And the partnership between the school social workers, the school psychologists, we also have behavior intervention support specialists. And then them just working together collaboratively to support students. It also speaks to how important and how um, vested they are in those opportunities. I think because we see value in that, we are willing to be so creative to come up with plans to meet students' needs. But of course, it's really important for us to be able to respond to those um, situations that are that need some immediate um, support. But we continue to ki- try to get to a more proactive place. And I'm really pleased to have the partners that we do here. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when um, when I was a high school counselor and I would uh, come home from the end of a, of a work day, my wife, Tracy, would ask me what I did that day and I couldn't remember because it was just so much of just reacting to things that had happened during the day. So it's this kind of blend of like, you have to respond to what's happening in the moment while also trying your best to be proactive and uh, support needs in sort of uh, in that direction. Um, and Felicia, you're, you're coming at this from a different perspective because you're a school psychologist and have been uh, for a couple of decades now. What does your assessment do? data show about the mental health needs of students in your division? So Richmond City, of course, is the urban school district, and our population is primarily African-American. And so we, prior to the pandemic, we noticed that several of our students were struggling with mental health needs, and it has increased since then. Uh, They are coming in asking for mental health supports. Uh, They are reporting increased symptoms of depression and anxiety, as well as fear of the unknown. Um, Sometimes it's fear of getting COVID or fear that a family member will contract the disease and die. They're uh, afraid of other issues like homelessness and the community violence that plagues the number of our students and limited family resources, uh, food and clothing that are limited for some of our students and their families. And they're very concerned about that. Um, Just today, one of our uh, high school seniors relayed that he is struggling right now because he was growing up in an intergenerational family where the grandmother was supporting the family. And she's about to move in with another one of her children. And he is really worried about the impact that that is going to have on his family. And so our students have been struggling with these types of stressors. And as a result of Uh, What has been going on in our country with the social unrest, with the pandemic, it has um, impounded them even more significantly. A number of students are having more significant reports of attentional and focusing issues. Um, We as school psychologists and school counselors and school social workers are completing an inordinate number of threat assessments, suicide and self-harm assessments. Um, The increased number of students who are expressing even homicidal ideation. So our students are really having a difficult time. 
And not only are our students having a difficult time, our staff is having a difficult time as well. Um, I don't know about the other divisions, but we have teachers who are going out on mental health leave because they are really struggling with trying to maintain their own mental health um, or their wellness in a way that they can support the students and it's not working. They need a break. Um, They need to be able to have time to really just focus on themselves. But returning back to students, We have noticed that our students are having difficult time dealing with even minor stressors and that their response to those stressors are frequently very extreme in the form of either internal or external violence. And in some instances, both. We have students who are just numb um, and will report, others will report frequently associated symptoms with trauma, like sleep disturbance, appetite disturbance, uh, crying spell, sadness, agitation, lethargy, anhedonia, any, any number or combination of those symptoms. And we're seeing a lot of behavior outbursts, disruptions in the academic environment that are extreme. And it's the way that some of our students have of communicating with us that they are experiencing some emotional difficulty. They don't have the language to be able to tell us that. And so I I, I applaud not only um, what Erica is doing, but also VDOE and the mandate for all Virginia schools to really start to address and make social emotional learning part of the curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. And so much of what you just uh, shared, Dr. Fred Harris, really resonates with a lot of the research that we've been doing in our center. We've done a lot of reading and uh, and produced a couple of pretty in-depth literature reviews on this topic. And it's the same things about like very clear increases in diagnosed anxiety, depression in our students, increases in uh, externalizing behaviors as well. But what you said that really resonates with me is the research really makes it clear that low-income families and communities of color have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and by extension have likely had their mental health disproportionately impacted. And so our school divisions that are racially segregated and higher poverty are going to be in need of particular support. So the work that you're doing is so important. And Patrice, I'm curious in the, the work that you do at the Partnership for People with Disabilities, you deal with a lot of data. How consistent is what Dr. Fred Harris just shared with the data trends that you see in the PPD? Well, obviously, she's spot on. <laughs> um, I just, Dr. Harris, it's, and, uh, it's very sad to hear. And I just have to say something. I just, that's just so sad um, to hear that our teachers and our students or our children are suffering like that. Um, I think we were at home for so long and virtual learning for so long. And a lot of our children, I think, and our teachers were suffering with that or, or, or it was an adjustment but we did it, what, for two years, maybe some of our school districts, maybe some longer. And then now it's time to go back. And I think sometimes what we forget is that for some people, that virtual land was a great place to be. Some of us like to be alone. They like to be learn virtually. They don't like to be with all these people. They, they feel safe in their home, right? And so what I'm seeing is an increase in anxiety, an increase in depression, and I've quite a few cases where children just don't want to go back and they're having a hard time getting acclimated back into school, whether it be 
um, they because of their disability, they don't want to wear a mask or they can't wear a mask or they don't understand that. Now that masks are going away, some kids are afraid because they want to wear masks. Um, depending on what's going on at home, sometimes I think the anxiety and at home from parents and the, you know the stress they put on their children and their children carry that and that's that's an, a burden that they they carry as well. So for sure, there's an increase in depression and anxiety. And I'm seeing a lot of places where we're, where there needs to be a placement for the child or a compromise on how often the child goes to school because of that. So, yeah. David, if I could add, um, you know, one of the things that Patrice just said about those social interactions um, in middle school, you know, middle school is a very um, interesting developmental um, time for a lot of students. And what I've noticed is that increase in um inability to have appropriate social interactions with students as a result of having been home for so long. And so while we bring sixth graders into the building, socially, they're really more like fourth graders. Mm. And so we're having a really hard time of navigating that space with those students, with the seventh graders and eighth graders as well. And so because they were not had that, they did not have that opportunity to appropriately socialize with their grade level peers when they came back into the building on top of the traumas that they experienced prior to the pandemic, the trauma of the pandemic and the trauma of having to come back to school when I felt comfortable at home mm. um, and increase incidences of bullying, um, both verbal and physical bullying. So all of those things are, you know, part of that, you know, responsive supports that we've had to provide as school counselors that all comes back to mental health, well-being, social, emotional well-being, and how we provide those supports and intervention to our students and empowering our teachers to be able to respond to appropriately in the classrooms when these things happen as well, knowing that some of it is developmental, right? But some of it is also the fact that they've had traumas from being at home for so long right? Um, and trying to understand that dynamic and educating them in that way. Yeah. And there's, and there's so much research support for what you're sharing and some of the reading that we've been doing. It's the same thing about um, there's that when families will express what their particular concerns have been during the pandemic, remote learning over and over again was the thing that they were most stressed about, even more so than the potential for becoming sick from the pandemic. They were more stressed about having to be at home for remote learning. And then, like you said, you all of a sudden, you finally have, have been able to adapt to that. And then you get kind of re-traumatized by having to go back into school. It's like we've been frozen in time. And Patrice, you make such an important point about the family connection, because our research is showing that too, that there's a very clear connection between parent and child well-being and their stress. And it's it's very clear that it sort of transfers back and forth. So it's clear that like in school systems, there's so much that you have to consider. We're not just talking about students. We're also talking about um, faculty, but also their families. Um, and Amy, from Henrika's perspective with your work, what would you consider to be the key ways that Henrika works to meet the mental health needs of your students? And how would you say that this has shifted in recent years um, based off of some of the, the context that we've been talking about? From a district level perspective, we have that really strong focus on creating a safe and supportive climate for all individuals within Henrico. This allows really for the promotion of wellness uh, for all, starting with our adults. Just as someone mentioned earlier, adult and caregiver wellness is linked to overall student wellness, so it really starts there. And then ensuring that we have highly skilled and trained staff to help support the needs 
Our school-based mental health team members consist of a school counselor, school psychologist, and school social worker that are all master's level or higher, some of which hold clinical licensure and many that have advanced certifications like a certified trauma practitioner status. Um, but not only that we have highly skilled professionals, that we also have the proper number of providers to truly help supporting the growing needs. As I mentioned earlier, Henrico hired approximately 40 new school counselors for this year. And for the upcoming year, we're looking to onboard more school social workers and psychology positions. And then, you know, that access and utilization of evidence-based programs that support the needs of our students. So really evaluating what is the data telling us, where do our needs lie, and then making sure that we're targeting through training our staff to provide the interventions and support. Plus, we continue to look for more evidence-based materials to add to our resource bank. One thing that we're hoping for next year is utilizing a social-emotional screening tool to assess specifically how our students are performing. Um, and how has this shifted in recent years? I think that, you know, we all pretty much knew that this work was important. Um, I don't think you could find many people that would argue against that, but I think what happened is COVID really pushed the needs and the urgency to the forefront. As a division team, we didn't really have to advocate for, for uh, the need for services because it was what we all knew and could see and essentially what we were all experiencing in some ways, sometimes on a very personal level. So in the beginning, when schools were first reopening, we had a strong focus on rebuilding connection and community so that we could provide the support needed. When school went virtual, of course, we all experienced that loss of connection, and it was so important that we began to reestablish that right away. Also, in some cases, we made a shift in the way that we typically deliver our social-emotional lessons, whether it was moving lessons to an asynchronous module, completing them online, we wanted to make sure that our students had access to this important information. And again, with the idea that we all have to be invested in supporting student wellness. So no matter where you are in the district, not just our school-based mental health team members, but teachers, building leaders, coaches, school nurses, everyone, that we all were invested in the work. And then thinking about all that's happened within our communities in this past couple of years, we understand that you know some of our students have experienced really adverse effects. And for many of these events, may have been considered traumatic. And because of this, our Trauma Advisory Committee has met on at least a monthly, if not bi-monthly basis, which is a little bit of shift um, from what we have done previously to work really hard to develop the resources and learning materials to help support our students. And then helping folks to kind of rethink maybe what in the past has been described as student behavior. We've really helped to kind of uh, change that and you know use a different lens to really you know, help staff understand that this could be what we're seeing could really be a result of these adverse experience or trauma or even through the extended disruption from the typical school environment. And then unfortunately, we, along with other surrounding districts, have experienced an increase in community-related violence, which has caused an increase from our crisis response team. Our crisis response team are comprised of a school counselor, social worker, psychologist, that all come together and provide crisis support within the school setting following a tragic event, as well as then work to connect our students, staff, and family members to those resources in the community. So we've really worked collectively at how to best improve our model and approach while again, strengthening those community partnerships. As I mentioned earlier, we're really grateful for such collaborative community partners that can provide that support within our communities. And then as others have mentioned, we've also seen an increase in suicidal ideation to which our school-based mental health teams 
you know, are there to utilize an evidence-based screening tool to help assess risk and then connect with parents and caregivers to arrange support. This has been essential to connecting our students to needed services. And then I'd really love to highlight that students became the leaders and advocates in this work. In this work. One bright spot that maybe came out of COVID was that it really helped normalize uh, dis discussions about mental health and the need to have these really important conversations. In fact, many of our students have been really uh, leading these conversations. We've actually had some reach out to discuss starting mental health advocacy or awareness groups within their school or offering suggestions on how to best meet uh, student mental health needs. This has really been an amazing shift to witness um, that our students now become the strong advocates for this, uh, for their mental health and overall wellness. Right. And I appreciate your focus on school-based mental health teams. Um, and that includes school counselors, school social workers, school psychologists. And the, the one sort of stakeholder group that we don't really have represented on this call is school social workers. But I just want to give a quick shout out to school social workers and the amazing things that they do. I know when I was a, a school counselor, we relied on our school social worker to do so much from uh, mental health support, but also truancy and doing home visits and social workers do it uh, so much, but so do school psychologists. And so uh, Felicia, can you share what role do you see school psychologists playing in the overall approach to mental health support in a school division? So I definitely agree with a lot of what Amy was saying, because um, we're saying the same thing in our division from the perspective of the school psychologist. Uh, she mentioned um, their trauma advisory committee. We also have a trauma advisory committee and a restorative practice committee. And as school psychologists, several of us are sitting on those committees at the district level, which allows us to address uh, and be more proactive and not just reactive in that area from both a conceptual and a practical framework and providing um, guidelines or guidance to the division about how to address those things. We're also providing professional development to the staff in the buildings um, it, as groups, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, the nursing staff um, within the division to address various mental health topics and, you know, when Matt talked earlier about the definition, including not just mental health concerns in the way of illness, but also talking about wellness. And so talking about some self-care practices and mindfulness and meditation and things that people can do to help to improve their mental health so that it can take them from striving to actually thriving. We are essential parts um, of a collaborative team. As many people have already said, we work with our school social workers, our school counselors, our behavioral specialists, as well as our community partners. We are very fortunate in Richmond City to have partnerships with community and schools and Richmond Behavior Health Authority, which is our local community service board, as well as Child Savers. Um, and those community partners are within our buildings. And so that's of the additional layer of support for our students and our families. We assist parents in navigating the mental health supports um, and listening to their concerns and reassuring them about seeking help for their child. Mental health services, um, someone mentioned the fact that it's becoming less taboo and we do have students who are reaching out, but we are finding that for some of our families, some of our parents, some of our grandparents, um, it is still somewhat of 
taboo subject. And so they are not uh, really on board initially about getting that support. And so really talking to them about that and broaching that hard subject with those families and helping them to understand the importance of getting support and being with them every step of the way in getting that assistance for that student. We're also assisting parents in identifying what they might be feeling. And when I say parents, I'm using that loosely because I also mean guardians, um, whoever is the caretaker of that particular child, making sure that they feel supported, making sure that we address any potential needs that they may have for mental health supports, and making sure that we provide similar services for our colleagues within the buildings. We're also providing resources um, based on that student or that family's need. So if we have a student who is on the autism spectrum, they may benefit more from ABA therapy or a student who has a significant trauma history. We want to make sure that we refer them to a trauma-informed clinician so that they can adequately address that student's needs. We're Again, as I mentioned, we're conducting threat assessments as well as suicide and self-harm assessments. And more importantly, we're making recommendations to address whatever precipitating or ongoing issues have led to that student feeling like this is their only out. We are providing counseling to students who need mental health support. We're coordinating with other uh, building professionals to support students who are in crisis and completing the required documentation with recommendations. We are consulting with our teachers and our parents and our administrators and other mental health staff regarding student supports and mental health care. We are looking at how we can make sure that our school is doing what we said at the start of the school year. We as RPS wanted to open Leading with Love, and we wanted to provide a space that was loving and open and welcoming to all of our students. Right, and those comprehensive wraparound services are especially important now considering all the the stress that people have been under in relation to the pandemic. And Laura, I'm curious in Chesterfield, what have you noticed about how student and faculty mental health has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, broadly speaking, I think Chesterfield throughout the Commonwealth, I think all of us are seeing um, an increase in frequency of um, mental health issues as we've talked about today. But I think it's important, and I think most of us um, recognize being in this field that we really had significant mental health issues pre-COVID. And now what we're seeing is those systems really being overwhelmed at many levels. And if you think about the tiered system as we often use in um, education, what we have now are higher numbers of people students, staff at that tier two and tier three and fewer at tier one. And so we have also caregivers and staff who may not have the same capacity and stamina that they once had because they too have experienced this hyper state of arousal and response. And everyone's really had to make huge adjustments in response to the pandemic. And many have experienced various levels of trauma. And as we've mentioned, at times that's disproportionate. We also know that caregiver mental health is significantly correlated with student mental health. And so I think that it is important, just as Felicia had mentioned, to um, think about all when we think about mental wellness. 
And to address this in our community, we've also offered some caregiver trainings for staff and community members, even thinking about coaches and YMCA staff. We also really have um, focused on mindfulness, stress reduction opportunities, and we are also really fortunate to have a robust employee assistance program that supports staff and their families, and that has been a great resource during this time. I think another issue with capacity that I think about is that because our mental health support staffs are at capacity and taxed and dealing with being responsive, that it even gives more um, importance to the capacity of, of our teachers, our caregivers, and our parents in responding to student needs. And even though we're not training them to be mental health providers, we are providing youth mental health first aid training for staff so that they feel more equipped to recognize those mental health needs in students and know how and to whom to refer to um, in a timely manner. We also have great partnerships as well. Uh, we give monthly presentations, more than sad and raise your voice presentations in partnership with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Those are for parents, caregivers, staff members. And these trainings don't take the place of professional support again, but they really help us all have shared ownership in our community as adults and have some level of awareness and knowledge of how to support youth mental uh, wellness. And um, I think those strong partnerships in our communities have been so important, but we've also seen that many times when, when we're um, interacting with our partnerships that they also um, are, are really feeling the strain of providing um, services when there's such a need at this time. Right. Those community partnerships are so critical. And I also think you make a really important point about how, given the rising mental health needs and the current capacity issues, that it's going to end up falling not just on school-based mental health providers. That's sort of a working theory of our study, too, is that teachers are going to be tasked with meeting the mental health needs of their students in at least some capacity. So it's something that we we need to make sure that everybody's sort of emotionally and professionally, professionally prepared for. And Matt, you have these kinds of conversations across the country. How does what Laura just shared resonate with what you've noticed in your work in schools and districts in and out of Virginia? Yeah. You know, the first thing I want to say is just, wow. Um, as, I'm, as I'm just sitting here and listening to all the work that the folks on this podcast are doing. I'm I'm filled with two emotional experiences that are at the center of this conversation in my mind, which is hope and heartbreak. You know, it can be really easy for us to see the term mental health and see it as another talking point, especially right now, because we're having so much conversation about it. And it's important as we're listening to the incredible work that's being done and the needs that are being identified by data, behind those numbers are lives. And we have a lot of lives that are really hard right now. And so the first thing I'd say is like, I'm, I'm sitting with this sense of like inspiration as well as like this like gut-wrenching heartache. Uh, and I think that's important for us to acknowledge because a part of this conversation around how we more fully meet mental health needs of the humans within our school systems is about our capacity to have these conversations and not to try to fast forward through the heartbreak of it all. You know, for, for young children that go through a trauma, one of the most dangerous and damaging things that we can do is leave them without an explanation. 
Because what happens is for a young child, they don't have the cognitive capacity or the life experiences or the emotional regulation skills to be able to regulate the immense emotional experience of something that was traumatic. And what happens is when they don't have the presence of a caregiving adult to help them make sense of that experience, it is not safe for them to blame the caregivers within their life. However, for simplicity's sake, in order for their brain to create coherence of what has happened, there does need to be an explanation. And for young children, what that often creates is a black and white explanation that this is somebody's fault. And if it's not safe to blame the caregivers, then that means it's my fault. So by not empowering people with conversations, what we do is we perpetuate shame. The belief that there's something inherently wrong with me that makes me unlovable, that the painful thing is my fault. And so there's something really powerful just about having these conversations, about acknowledging that this is difficult, about leaning into these questions, whether you're a classroom teacher, whether you're at the district level, whether you're a parent, this is incredibly difficult. And this is something we've been struggling with for a long time. And so across the country, that's that's really what I'm seeing. I'm seeing people struggling with this question. And I'm seeing schools and school districts seeing what folks have described here today, increase in trauma symptoms. We're seeing scattered attention, depression, anxiety, behavioral outbursts, rapid increases in suicidal ideation and suicide and self-harm assessments. And we're seeing systems that are overburdened by these needs. And amidst that immense difficulty. We're seeing mental health professionals and educators lean into creativity and collaboration, and we're seeing amazing new innovations in how we meet some of these needs. And what I'm really seeing, what really inspires me the most, is we're seeing classrooms and schools and school districts starting to ask the question, is all of this, just the responsibility of our school counselors, our school psychologists and school social workers? Or is it possible that actually within our schools, we have mental health professionals and that every other person there who's charged with taking care of a child may not be a mental health professional, but everyone is a mental health support. That we know our deepest psychological drive as human beings is that we are neurobiologically hardwired for connection. And that means that our schools are hopeful places, that if we can empower our educators with an understanding of our neurobiological needs, of understanding more about the nervous system and how to create environments that help children regulate their nervous systems and label emotions and have conversations about their experiences, it's not just that we no longer perpetuate disconnection and disorder. We can actually create environments that promote health and well-being. And that's what fills me with inspiration, that we're having more of these conversations. It's heartbreaking that we're having these conversations because of the immense difficulty, but it is so exciting to see that we're having more of these conversations and that we are open to making some of these innovations that, quite frankly, our schools have needed for a really long time. 60 years ago, the Harvard labs uh, created theories of behavioral modification that were amazing at the time and were cutting edge. 
And a lot of our narratives and the designs for our structures within our society are still rooted in that science from decades ago and have not been updated to what we have learned about neurobiology and psychology. And what I'm seeing across the country and what I'm seeing within our region are educators and mental health professionals who are now pushing us forward to align our systems with what the science says. It's really powerful, Matt. And I, I'm also really blown away by just the amount of uh sort of wraparound services that are being offered in our school divisions that have been shared here. And I'm sure that's really just scratching the surface. And I also appreciate you mentioning the connection with uh, with caregivers. Patrice, this is really the heart of what, what you do in your work. What do we know about the role that families play in the mental health of their children? And how can schools best partner with parents in support of the mental health of their students? I think the key word there is partner. And what I'm thinking about is partnership, collaboration, communication, empathy with one another, um, because it all boils down to that. It's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened, right? Us in the, in the mental health world, that's what we want to focus on, what happened. You know, not what's wrong with you. Why did you do that? But what happened? And I think faculty, I think schools, and I think parents are equally responsible for asking one another that question. I think probably, in my opinion, and this is not every circumstance, families probably play the primary role for the mental health, right? But not always, because sometimes that those mental health issues start from home. On a personal level, I, for an example, 15 years ago, my brother had passed away or and I was well before he passed away I was caring for him he had leukemia and I was caring for him and I was trying to take care of my children and I and you know my husband traveled I was trying to do all of this right so I would take them to the bus get them to school come home take care of my brother get them back it was just all you know on 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 um and I was didn't think to mention anything and I noticed my daughter was coming home and her hands were raw like just raw. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I would put lotion on her hands and try to soothe her hands. And this went on for a bit. And finally, I went into the classroom to talk to the teacher. And it was flu season and everybody had antibacterial solution on their desks for flu season because teacher doesn't want to get sick and have it spread through the class. Then I realized in, in my daughter's mind, I was at home saying, we can't get sick. We can't get sick. We got to watch our germs because, you know, this, this, this. And it took so shamefully, it took so long. I should have taken the responsibility as the parent to reach out and communicate with her teacher. Hey, this is going on at home. If you notice anything, please keep me informed, you know, and I'll do the same. And we can collaborate and talk to one another on that and, and, and be a team, you know, to help us support. And that didn't happen at first. You know, another example, which was like the flip side of it is my brother had passed. By this time, you know, the school knows, right? Because, you know, we all know it's, you know, I told everybody was aware of what's going on and that my brother had passed. And I was struggling mentally myself. Now, did that? Did I communicate that to the school? No, I kept that, you know. But how it was coming out where my kids were showing up to school late, past the bell. So instead of someone reaching out to me saying, "Are you okay?" You know, it was you know, just checking in on you. You know what I mean? 
I got a letter of report to the office at a certain, certain date. And I reported to the office and the social worker was there reprimanding me on truancy. And again, that's another example of the importance of communication and asking one another what happened, what's going on. Let's check in with one another. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm so struck by, by what you just said, Patrice. And it just really reminds us that our parents are going through so much too. Like you, you can't, consider student mental health with all also considering what their families are going through because it shows just so intimately connected. And Eric, I'm curious how this resonates with your efforts with parent and guardian outreach in Petersburg. Yeah, uh, Patrice, thank you for sharing that. That's so powerful and it's a strong visual to help us really understand how important that communication piece is between the home and between school, you know, both ways, Um, you know, and with parent and guardian communication, um, that partnership is so, so critical um, because, you know, oftentimes what's happening with our students is their um, mental health, um, the impact of their mental health needs show up behaviorally and then they get in trouble and then it becomes a discipline issue. And then when you're calling the parent, you're calling the parent to tell the parent your kids got suspended because they punched another kid because they said something about their shoes. Right. And so not we're not always asking the question, well, um, you know, well, what what happened? Like what's going on? Why are we having such a strong response when someone is saying something about your shoes? Oh, because, you know, my brother who was um, killed last year, these were his shoes and he let in and I wear them because I want to honor him. And so we don't ask those questions. And so the communication piece is so important. And, um, you know, and um, transitioning from one school division um, to Petersburg City Public Schools, um, it was an awakening for me as a school counselor because the culture and the, the dynamics were very different. And I found myself asking more of the what's going on with you question, not just with the students, but with the parents. Um, Because once you begin to see the same parents over and over again, you start to wonder like, okay, this is like the fourth time you're picking Johnny up because he's gotten in trouble. Like, how are you doing? Like, how are you feeling? Like, how is this impacting you? Because you have to leave work, you you know, you have other children, you know? And so we begin to ask those questions and parents will kind of feel that sense of relief because I've been carrying this weight for so long and no one has ever thought to ask me how I'm feeling. And so that partnership is really important. And I, um, you know, in my practice as a school counselor, I really um, promote that transparency and that really honest conversation with the parents that I serve. When I see something that is um, just doesn't feel right with their student, I'm having that open and honest conversation conversation. I'm seeing XYZ behavior. It is a pattern and we're trying to figure out where it's coming from. Like, has there been any changes in your life in the past six months? Um, have, have you experienced any trauma in your life over the past few years? You know, and 
out of those conversations, we get this wealth of information that helps us to better engage with the student, better able to provide specific supports. Because once you can know that information, the parent feels relieved that someone cares, truly cares. And they also get the sense that, oh, I didn't even realize that this thing happening last year is still impacting my kid this year. And so we get to see those patterns of behavior and put two and two together. And then we can say, okay, well, let's do this. We offer therapeutic day treatment support in our schools. Let's get your kid signed up for some supports there. We can do check-ins with the school counselor. We'll get him or her, you know, um, engaged in this small group programming, or do you need intensive in-home services? Like we can now have these conversations and really particularly tailor the services to the needs of the student. So I absolutely think the parental guardian buy-in is so important. And even when we have students who, um, um, for severe mental health crises that are hospitalized, Having those safety team meetings is so important. Having everyone at the table, having the conversation about how to reintegrate these students back into the school environment. Um, We had one scenario with a student um, that the student was hospitalized, was released from the hospitalized hospital, came back into the school and no one was aware and had a whole separate crisis and then had to have another hospitalization because we did not communicate about that transition for the student. So all of these things, these critical pieces are so important when working with families. And then even if they are receiving outpatient support, offering that parent and student an opportunity for the school to be able to communicate because oftentimes we see the behaviors in the school. The parent never sees the behavior. The therapist never knows that there's a behavior because the student doesn't tell them. And then you're providing interventions for behavior that's really not what we're actually seeing. So those pieces are really critical in helping us to truly support the needs of the students. And that helps us to communicate with the teachers about what to do, what not to do, what to say, how to say it, things like that. Um, Because when we have this baseline information and we can all get it by simply asking that, how are you doing? What's really going on? Has there been any trauma history? How can we support you instead of what's wrong with your kid? They won't stop, you know, fighting people. We can't keep them here. Instead of going that route, we just ask those why questions and how can we support you? I think, and I think Erica, coming from a place of love and non-judgment and just being kind, we, we, by nature, social psychology teaches us, we, by nature, are social individuals. We want to connect with each other. We want to be empathetic to one another. That is why our mirror neurons call us cause us to smile when someone smiles at us, cause us to yawn when someone we're really connected with yawns. We are wired to be connected, to have that humanness that will allow us to ask a parent who has a child who has been hospitalized, as you mentioned, they may have all these additional outside supports. We can ask that parent, how are you doing? You know, a lot of times that child's needs may be taken care of, but who is asking that parent? Who is asking that parent and possibly connecting that parent with resources that they may need? When I when I when I talk to and support families and they complain about school or a teacher or something like that, I'm like, you really want to be careful on how you word things and how you approach things. We really want to keep in mind that we want to create a team because this team, these teachers are with your children 
longer than you are with your children during the day. So you do not want to create an us and them situation. You want everybody to be together. Yeah, I think this conversation really speaks to our first point about schools are communities and those relationships are so critical. And I also was thinking as we were talking about the physical piece, wow, our school nurses are really an integral part of our mental health team as well. I notice sometimes they're the ones that recognize, hey, this kid's coming in a lot with a lot of somatic complaints, stomach aches, headaches, and we are seeing that um, frequently. And so they're a great um, part of our team as well. And I think Erica's point also spoke to that communication piece. We are we try really hard to have reentry meetings here, and I, and I know that um, most of our school systems are, are trying to do that um, very regularly. That's so critical because it's that opportune time to set up supports when kids are coming back to school from hospitalization or if there was a discipline issue or, or various things of that nature. So I just wanted to give a shout out to um, our school nurses and just I really so much of this conversation really resonates with me and, and what I'm seeing here in Chesterfield. Absolutely. Shout out to to school nurses and anybody who's in a helping profession in schools. Um, And what this incredible group of people has in common besides the commitment to mental health is that they're all on the study team for the Merck Supporting Mental Health in Schools study. And considering everything that we just talked about, I feel feel overwhelmed. Like, how do you study (laughs) something like this? We've spent a semester just trying to wrap our head around this issue, and we've come up with a research design. So I'm just going to give a quick overview of what it is specifically that we're planning on doing with this study. Um, And then we're just going to reflect on what it is that we're hoping to learn. So there's three main components to this that we're hoping to accomplish. Uh, One is we're going to do a series of two literature reviews to see what research already exists out there on a couple of prominent topics that were selected with input from our school systems. Uh, One is we are doing a a literature review to understand what's the actual empirical connection between students being able to have access to school-based mental health providers and then what their outcomes are. So in another way of asking that would be when our school counselors, social workers, and psychologists are able to actually spend time providing mental health support to their students, what are the outcomes that our students experience socially, emotionally, and even academically? Um, And then a second literature review that we're focusing on is research that gives us evidence about what kind of training do teachers receive to support the mental health of their students, both pre-service. So I'm a faculty member in the School of Education at VCU where we're training pre-service teachers. What kinds of things do we do in our world and what kind of professional development do teachers receive actually after they've started in their profession as a teacher? Um, Because again, like we've talked about, the belief is that teachers are going to be increasingly tasked with trying to meet the mental health needs of their students. So those are two literature reviews that we have that are going to be coming out from this study. The first component of our actual research for data collection with this, as we've talked about today, there is so much that's happening in the Merck region for supporting mental health of students, faculty, and families in our schools. And so we want to get a good idea about what the landscape is of all of these existing programs and initiatives. And so we're going to be reaching out to school-based mental health leaders in our region and school division leaders who oversee this 
to get some sort of an idea about like, what are these actual programs? Can you offer a description of it? Who is, who are these programs intended to specifically support? Are there any kind of targeted interventions? Are they tier one through tier three? And then we're going to collect that information and provide a catalog that's as comprehensive as we could possibly make it so that we could share all of this amazing work that's being done in our region, provide links to accessible resources and share it so that people will then see, okay, if I need a, a program that's specifically targeted towards the mental health of English language learners, I can know that they're doing this in this division and here's where I can get that access. So we're trying to make a sort of a clearinghouse catalog of mental health programs that are happening in our region. And then we're planning on taking a look at what's provided in that catalog and uh, identifying three different programs that have the potential for scalability in our region. And we're going to do a program evaluation of those after reaching out to those program leaders to see, is this something that you'd be interested in? But the idea is to collect systematic evidence of how effective are these programs? Because we've heard this before from our school division partners is that there's so many different mental health programs that are out there, but we always don't know what their effectiveness is. So we want to provide some evaluation and effectiveness data. So that's the first main sort of research component to our study. And the second thing that we're doing is we're going to be doing a survey of our faculty and staff in Merck Division schools to understand um, their emotional and professional capacity to meet the mental health needs of their students. And so what do we mean by emotional and professional capacity? Emotional capacity means how are you feeling? Like what's going on with you right now, especially considering where we are with the pandemic, how you've had to shift with remote and hybrid learning going back and forth and having to be constantly adaptable. What is your mental health like right now? But also professional capacity. What kind of training have you received to be able to meet the mental health needs of your students? So this survey is going to be asking faculty to, to reflect on their own current mental health needs, um, what they perceive the mental health needs of their students to be, and what they perceive their capacity to be to meet student mental health. So we can get this essentially this big needs assessment so we can understand what what is the actual landscape of need in our region? But also we're going to be asking these uh, faculty members to provide lots of feedback and recommendations for what are some of the things that you know are helping in your division? What are some of the things that you would recommend as sort of a next step for us to be able to make a more comprehensive and holistic counseling or uh, mental health program in our schools at the elementary, middle, and high school level. So that's what we're hoping to accomplish. We're going to be working on this for the next few years, but we'll be sharing throughout the study, um, uh, our findings, because our, our goal is to try to inform policy and practice in what is clearly a rising need, and that is mental health supports in schools. And so as members of the study team, as we're wrapping up here, um, just curious, a quick sort of reaction to this. What are you hoping that we're going to learn from this study that can inform our approach to student and faculty mental health support in the Merck region? I think it's really exciting work that we're doing, David. And anyone that's listening to this, I'm I'm guessing that there, there are two things at least that they're taking away, which is that this is such a big challenge that we're talking about. And there are so many things that we are doing and can do. And so how can we empower people with the information they need to take more effective action so that the time and energy they're investing is really making an effective change? And so I really see us as providing that information that empowers. And if anybody's listening and they're they're really sitting with that question, like, well, what, what can I do? I want to just highlight a few things that I know I've heard in this conversation, which is we've talked about the importance of relationship, that content happens within the context of connection. And so if you're thinking, oh my gosh, what a big challenge, 
uh, for us to figure out how to better support student mental health. Uh, we know that every interaction is an opportunity for intervention. And so you can just bring a little bit more energy to establishing presence and trust within relationship with students, uh, which is something that so many of our school districts are doing, finding innovative and creative ways to help students get that connection. And as far as programs and systems and techniques and strategies that are most effective, the truth is right now we have more questions than we do answers. And so the what the most important thing we can do is continue to ask those questions uh, like we are with this study so that we can get more and more effective answers. I think when I think about what I'm hoping to learn from this study is um, ways that we can simply, and I say simply, it's probably way more complex than that, but broaden the scope of impact of addressing mental well-being and mental health um, and mental wellness for our students and our teachers. And, um, you know, mental health is um, the responsibility of all of us and every person's role in it might look different and that's fine, but it is a responsibility of all um, as we support our students toward academic success and achievement as well. Um, and so as we engage in that process of responding um, and that process of being proactive with the supports and interventions that we offer, um, we want to, you know, we talk about the BTSS, that triangle, we want to flip that thing back right side up because right now we're providing a lot of those intensive supports and services to a a broad spectrum of students, um, we want to flip it back so that we can begin to catch up to this process of being proactive and providing those supports and interventions um, and, and respond to the ones that need to be respond, but be more proactive so that we can um, write the triangle, if you will. I had two things. What I want, hope to learn, I think we all know this, but to, to have proof, if you will, is that mental health is equal to physical health. It's just one in the same. You can't have one without the other and how important that is. And to have healthy mental health, healthy physical health, that directly affects academic outcomes, um, success in school. Also that, that for schools, for faculty, it's equally important because it directly affects the academic outcomes of the student as well as the teacher, right? If you have a teacher who's really struggling with mental health, that that behavior unfortunately gets trickled down. And in the same case, the same, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm going backwards in my tier because I feel like, and then above that is administration. Like administration has to get on board so all these all these things can take place, right? So that's what I'm hoping that we can like this will help with that. I think one of the things that I'm hoping to gain is kind of like that concrete data or information to kind of show what we kind of already know and what we experience on the daily. We know, you know, how hardworking our school-based mental health team members are, our counselors, our psychologists, our social workers, but what would happen if we really clear that space for them to focus solely on supporting our student mental health? Um, so I, I, I'm really looking forward to, you know, 
kind of showing or proving what what all of us know and experience. And if we can really clear the way to help advocate, you know, to clear the space for our um, skilled team members to really provide the supports that we know are necessary. So I guess I'm hoping to look at the data and see what is out there that is already currently being done that is effectively addressing the mental health supports in our schools and also from a more proactive standpoint so that we are not constantly in this reactionary mode in providing services for our students and our families and our staff. I also am interested in just what resources are the most effective and efficient. You know, we have a finite amount of funding, of personnel. How can we best use that? We already feel that um, although we've heard wonderful things about our support teams, we could be even more um, impactful. And so if we have the opportunity to practice across all domains of training, I'm, I'm really curious to see where should we should spend our time and our finite resources. And I'm also really hopeful that this study and the work that's being done on mental health is perhaps a silver lining of the pandemic and that we'll continue to have this focus on mental wellness that we all feel so passionate about. Right. The, uh, the need is high, but there, there are people doing the work. And this is going to be a journey for all of us for the next few years working on this study. And if you're listening to this, we hope that you'll come along with us uh, to see what we can learn together. Um, and we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you want to learn more about our supporting mental health in school study, you could check out our website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. There you will also find research and resources from other Merck studies. If you would like to stay up to date on our findings from our mental health study, you can sign up for our listserv on our homepage. You can also subscribe and listen to other episodes of Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Our thanks, as always, to the VCU School of Education for the supporting the work that we do at Merck and to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, and Richmond Public Schools. Many thanks to Patrice Beard, Laura Early, Amy Johnson, Matt Shanker, Erica Daniels, and Felicia Friend-Harris for being here today to share their professional expertise and how we can best support student mental health in schools. And of course, thanks, as always, to you for joining our conversation wherever you may be. We hope that you will share this episode with anyone who you think will find it useful or interesting. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium and the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.